Tune Review, and Speaking to the Blind, celebrating 40 years of audio newspaper production. Welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, recorded at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre by our amazing volunteers. You can get in touch with us via Facebook, Twitter or Instagram using at Tune Review, that is at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. You can also contact us directly by emailing information at tunereview.com. That is I-N-F-O-R-M-A-T-I-O-N at symbol C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com or by calling 0141 772 3976. That's 0141 This is from The National on Friday the 25th of August from the News section. Humzar Youssef pledges Scotland's support to Ukraine on Independence Day. This article is written by Liam McLaughlin. Humzar Youssef has taken part in a wreath-laying ceremony in Edinburgh to commemorate Ukraine's Independence Day. The First Minister joined officials in a ceremony at Edinburgh City Chambers to pay tribute to the memory of those who have sacrificed their lives for Ukraine. In a speech released online, Yusuf said Scotland stands in absolute solidarity with Ukraine and welcomed the more than 25,000 Ukrainians offered sanctuary in Scotland since the illegal Russian invasion in February 2022. He said... We will do everything we can to support you so that you have a home in Scotland for as long as you need it. And we are grateful for the contribution you are making to communities across the country. It is vital that countries across Europe and around the world help you to achieve victory and then to rebuild your country. The First Minister ended his speech promising that Scotland will continue to stand with Ukraine as you fight for your future as a free, independent European nation. The Supreme Soviet of Ukrainian SSR, the then Ukrainian Parliament, declared itself independent from the laws of the USSR on August 24th, 1991, a declaration that paved the way toward an independent Ukrainian state. The declaration was affirmed on December 1st, 1991, when a countrywide independence referendum showed 92.3% of Ukrainians favoured the establishment of an independent Ukraine. Yusuf's congratulations and affirmation of support for Ukraine joined the calls of other international figures, such as US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken. Blinken said, I want to congratulate all Ukrainians on their Independence Day, August the 24th is a testament to Ukraine's independence, sovereignty and democracy and a day of pride in Ukraine's strength and resilience. It is also a day of celebration of Ukrainian heritage and culture. The United States will continue to stand with you and work with our allies and partners to ensure Ukraine has what it needs to defend itself, to recover and to thrive. At an awards ceremony in Ukraine, Vladimir Zelensky, the President of Ukraine, said Today we celebrate the 32nd anniversary of our independence, the independence of Ukraine. 
This is a value for each of us, and this is what we are fighting for. And everyone is important in this fight, because this is a fight for something that is important to everyone. An independent Ukraine. That article was written by Liam McLaughlin. This is from The National on Friday the 25th of August, from the Politics section. John Kerry casts doubt on Rishi Sunak's Max Out North Sea pledge. This article is written by Steph Braun. John Kerry has cast doubt on whether Rishi Sunak will max out new oil and gas opportunities in the North Sea as promised, as he insisted unabated burning of fossil fuels has to end across the world. Kerry, the US Special Presidential Envoy for Climate, said no new coal-fired power stations should be permitted anywhere in the world, in a speech in Edinburgh on Thursday, adding Mother Nature was sending an ever more desperate distress signal about the coming catastrophe. He also hit out at climate change deniers, warning the world is now at a precipice where the reckless abuse of the environment could have unleashed forces of nature way beyond our control. Speaking to the press after the speech, he was asked repeatedly what he thought of Sunak's pledge to grant hundreds of new North Sea oil and gas licences in the UK. Although he said it was not his job to be commenting on other countries' policies, he did say the UK has deployed a massive amount of wind power and the more that goes up it's going to become competitive if it isn't ready, which I believe it is, with fossil fuel. So, let's see if they actually drill. Let's see what happens, because I think that dynamic is shifting all over the world. Kerry added he felt many countries were not keeping promises they made on climate change at COP26 in Glasgow in 2021. Describing coal as the dirtiest fuel, Kerry said there is no rational reason for contributing to the problem by burning it. Calling for action, he said, it should be obvious by now, we have better choices. He added, it is time for countries across the world to join together to take a more critical step. There should be no more permitting of any new unabated coal-fired power anywhere in the world. He continued, knowing what we know are the impacts and given the alternative options, there is just no rational reason for contributing more to the problem by turning to the world's dirtiest fuel burned in the dirtiest way. Unless we, all of us, start doing more, faster, now, future generations will trade the unalienable right to the pursuit of happiness for struggle in the pursuit of survival. The comments came as he delivered an address at the inaugural Scottish Global Dialogues in Edinburgh, a new annual series of lectures focused on the climate crisis. Kerry, who was introduced by First Minister Humza Yousaf at the event, used his speech to condemn those extremist political voices and those with vastly vested interests who, he said, had declared war on facts and science when dealing with environmental issues. These groups would choose a destructive status quo over the opportunity to build a clean energy economy, he said. Hitting out at those who refuse to accept the facts behind the increasingly obvious damages of the climate crisis, 
Kerry said that without facts or economics on their side, they flatly deny what is happening to our planet and what we must do to save it. As a result, he said, humanity is inexorably threatened by humanity itself. But while he said the Earth could be at one of the most dangerous moments in human history, he added it may also be the greatest moment of opportunity for human advancement. With the COP28 climate change summit due to take place in Dubai in November and December, he said, In this moment we have a unique opportunity to significantly accelerate transition to a clean energy economy. The latest climate talks will take place almost a decade on from the signing of the Paris Agreement in 2015, where 200 nations vowed to try to keep global temperature rises below 1.5 degrees centigrade, above pre-industrial levels. Kerry warned, We're significantly off track with efforts towards that target, noting emissions are currently rising, not falling. Despite that, Kerry insisted there are many more reasons for optimism, as he highlighted the growth in renewables and increased sales of electric vehicles. However, he said that the world is now on the precipice of tipping points, describing this as being the point at which events can simply unfold of their own momentum, the point at which our reckless abuse of an ecosystem has unleashed forces of nature way beyond our control. Kerry said, No one can predict with certainty the exact pace and scope of this unravelling. But common sense tells us inaction doesn't have a prayer of stopping what is happening. This is one of the most dangerous moments in human history. But it may also be the greatest moment of opportunity for human advancement. We have the chance now to write a future filled with choices that not only make life cleaner, healthier, fairer and safer. That article was written by Steph Braun. This is from The National on Friday the 25th of August from the Politics section. Scottish Government will not extend short-term let scheme deadline. This article is written by Steph Braun. The Scottish Government will not extend the deadline for short-term let operators to apply for a licence, whom Yousaf has insisted. A scheme which requires short-term let operators across Scotland to apply for a licence is due to come into place on October the 1st, after already being pushed back from its initial March 2023 launch date. Edinburgh City Council leader Camille Day suggested on Wednesday that he supported lobbying effects to further extend the deadline. So far, the council has received just 245 applications out of an estimated 12,000 short-term let properties in the city with many landlords claiming the scheme will decimate their businesses. But Yousaf said the remarks by day were really poor and insisted the Scottish Government will not wilt in the face of pressure from landlords. Asked if he would pause the new short-term let regulations, Yousaf said, No, we won't pause it. We have given an extension already and there has been plenty of time for those short-term lets to ensure that they put an application into the scheme. It is the right thing to do. I think it's supported by many members of the public, 
and I've seen some very good commentary from people saying this is exactly what Edinburgh needs. To see the leader of Edinburgh City Council roll over and abdicate any responsibility, I have to say, is really poor. The Scottish Government will not wilt in the face of that pressure, and will do the right thing. Day did subsequently claim on Thursday that the Council's position on adhering to the October the 1st deadline remains unchanged. He said on Twitter, X, from speaking to industry, I know there's nervousness around the 1st of October deadline, and they're lobbying the Minister for this to be extended further. But this is a date set in legislation, and we can't change it. Campaign group Living Rent Edinburgh said that the deadline shouldn't be delayed just because landlords have failed to apply for a licence. It comes after a report from Edinburgh Council found that the city could potentially see an 80% drop in the number of short-term lets available when the rules come into force. That article was written by Steph Braun. This is from The National on Friday the 25th of August from the Politics section. Scottish Labour accounts prove they aren't a party. This exclusive article is written by James Walker. Scottish Labour only meet their financial obligations due to financial assistance from the UK Labour Party, newly published accounts reveal. SNP President Michael Russell suggested that it shows Scottish Labour do not exist as a party in their own right. The accounts published online by the Electoral Commission on Thursday showed that Scottish Labour's total income dropped to £773,999 in 2022, down from £1,235,950 in 2021. With spending last year amounting to £897,786, the party recorded a deficit before tax of £123,787. Of note, in 2022, the Scottish Labour Party only made a contribution to nine employees' salary costs at a cost of £29,502, compared with 14 in 2021. All other staff costs were paid by the UK Labour Party. It is unclear how many people work for Scottish Labour specifically, but 394 employees, both full-time and part-time, work for the Labour Party, including their regional offices, as of December 31, 2022. Scottish Labour leader Anas Sawa previously dismissed suggestions that Scottish Labour are not a party in their own right as a conspiracy theory. We also previously reported that the party recently vacated the Glasgow offices, which have housed them for around a decade. A party spokesperson said Scottish Labour were moving to bigger premises in the city and added the move was not motivated by cost considerations. The annual filing also noted that Scottish Labour's finances are only a going concern, an accounting term used when it is assumed an entity will meet its financial obligations when they become due because of financial assistance from the UK Labour Party. The accounts read, In consideration of the available reserves as of 31st of December 2022 
and the budgeted results for the subsequent accounting period, the Labour Party has confirmed that it will provide financial assistance to the Scottish Labour Party as required to allow the Scottish Labour Party to meet its liabilities as they fall due for a period of at least 12 months from the date of signing the financial statements. Based upon the undertaking of financial support outlined, the Treasurer has a reasonable expectation that the party has adequate resources to continue its activities for the foreseeable future. Accordingly, the Treasurer has adopted the going concern basis in preparing the financial statements. Scottish Labour were contacted for comment but did not respond. When it comes to the other political parties, the Scottish Conservatives do not publish separate accounts to the main UK party. The SNP, meanwhile, showed a deficit of £804,278, while the Scottish Lib Dems had a surplus of £291,287. The Scottish Greens had a deficit of £28,191, while Alba recorded a surplus of £17,425. Scottish Labour Deputy Leader Dame Jackie Bailey said the accounts show the SNP is a party in utter disarray. She added, The financial chaos now engulfing the SNP goes to show how little the governing party can be trusted with Scotland's finances. Russell hit back at Bailey, saying, If you live in a glass house, don't throw stones. He added, I think a great deal has been made of the accounts of a number of political parties, but the accounts do prove that the Scottish Labour Party doesn't exist. It is an offshoot of the UK Labour, and it can only exist because it is funded by UK Labour. If their staff costs are met by other people, then it has no real substance to it. The other important thing is that the comparison to the SNP is like apples and pears. You're dealing with one party which is wholly funded in Scotland, entirely transparent, with all the salary costs and everything else laid out. And you've got another one, which Jackie Bailey and the others go around talking about, as if it's absolutely transparent. The more you go into the accounts, the more you realise she's not telling the truth. That article was written by James Walker. This is from The National, on Friday the 25th of August, from the news section. Scottish police urged not to cover resource shortage in pay dispute. This article is written by Laura Pollock. Police are being urged not to report for duty when they should not be working as the body that represents rank-and-file officers called for a fair and justifiable pay rise of 8.5%. The Scottish Police Federation, SPF, said its pay demand comes at a time when the force is stretched beyond the limit. But amid fears that spending could be cut further, SPF leaders insisted the Scottish Government must give the police service proper priority for funding. Off-duty officers staged a protest outside Thursday's meeting of the Scottish Police Authority as the SPF said its members are already working under significant stresses. Chairman David Threadgold said he knows of one officer who should have had 60 days off in the first 30 weeks of this year, but had 24 of these days off disrupted and was instead required to work. 
On those days when the officer was given eighteen or more days' notice that he would have to work, he did not get paid, Threadgold said, resulting in his family spending £150 a day on childcare. He said the officer was only promised another day off at some time in the future. Speaking about the situation overall, the SPF chairman added, There is no doubt that we are being asked to do more with less, and resources are stretched beyond the limit. Police are not permitted to strike, and with Threadgold insisting the SPF does not want the public to suffer during the pay negotiation, he said he has told police to do their job properly and not cut corners. But, he said, officers are being urged by the SPF not to work when off duty, as time off is needed to recuperate, and not to work when they are ill. Threadgold said, We do not have the right to take industrial action, but we do have the power of persuasion. All we are asking for is fair treatment in pay. Officer shortages, changes to shifts and days off are occurring for both day-to-day policing and special events, such as the Grangemouth oil protests or the UCI World Cycling Championships. Threats of further cuts are on the way, and only the Scottish Government can put this right. Shortage of resources and unfair treatment in pay can only be resolved by the Scottish Government giving the police proper priority in spending. SPF General Secretary David Kennedy pointed to pay rises awarded to other public sector workers, saying, Over the last two years, teachers and the fire brigade have had 12.35% rises, and nurses and doctors 14.5%. Last year we got 5%, and so far this year, nothing. Some of these other workers have gone on strike or threatened to, but we cannot do that. We look to the Scottish Government to treat us fairly, and not take advantage of our lack of industrial rights. Police have seen pay decline by 16% since 2006 as a result of inflation, Kennedy claimed, adding that a 10% special features payment given to officers had been eroded while police are working a 40-hour week, 10% more than the average. He said, We could have made a massive claim like some workers did, but we asked for 8.5%, which would give us the average of what was paid to these other groups. We think this is fair and justifiable. That article was written by Laura Pollock. From the National, Monday the 20th of August, from the news section, Scotland reacts to Tory plans to spend millions on Charles portraits. This article is an exclusive by Adam Robertson. Scots have reacted with fury to the news that the UK government is planning to spend millions to hang portraits of King Charles III in Scottish schools and other public buildings. A report in the Sunday Mail said that around £8 million had been earmarked for a plan to bring the image of the monarch into government-owned buildings. The UK government insisted this is a right move, although public buildings will be given the opportunity to refuse the portrait if they wish. Speaking to The National, a spokesperson for anti-monarchy campaign group Our Republic said that schools should not be used for King Charles to protect his own reputation. Public money in education should be used for education, not for propping up the propaganda effort of an out-of-touch and increasingly obsolete institution, 
attempting to cling to legitimacy as Scots, especially young Scots, turns or, turn their backs on it. They said, We rightly criticise governments abroad which attempt to use their education systems to reinforce their rule. Why should the monarchy be held to a different standard? Schools are meant to prepare young people for their future, not as a last-ditch effort for Charles to protect his own. Deputy Prime Minister Oliver Dowden has reportedly asked for an exhaustive list of every public building in Scotland which would be eligible to apply for a portrait. SNP MP for Edinburgh East, Tommy Shepherd, said he thought the plans were a scandalous waste of money. I think it's just the government treating people with contempt, he told the National. I presume they're trying to use the monarch to shore up their own popularity or something, but it's ill-judged and it's probably going to be counterproductive. It's got right-wing Tory stunt written all over it. At a time when people are suffering so brutally from economic hardship, I think most right-minded people will think this is the wrong priority. Many others took to Twitter to react to the news, with National Columnist Ruth Wishart commenting, Oliver Dowden, the bizarre choice as Deputy PM, wants every public building to have a mugshot of King Charles, the ultimate public servant. What are you on, ducks? I'd like some. You couldn't make it up, commented another, while others simply tweeted hashtag abolish the monarchy. Scottish Green MSP Maggie Chapman was also among those to hit out, saying the plans represented a grotesque misuse of public funds. She told The National, We are living through a deadly cost crisis caused by Tory incompetence and greed. People are struggling to pay their bills, public services are suffering, and the gap between the rich and the poor is widening. Yet, instead of spending money on supporting our public services and workers like firefighters and nurses, the UK government's focus is on dystopian schemes to hang portraits above their desks. This grotesque misuse of public funds shows the unmitigated contempt the Tories hold us in and the grossly unequal system they support. Scotland deserves so much better. Chapman's thoughts were echoed by her Scottish Greens colleague Ross Greer, who said the scheme would look more at home in North Korea. If Westminster wants to boost support for Charles Windsor, maybe they should end the exemptions he and his family enjoy from everything from inheritance tax to anti-discrimination laws, he told the Sunday Mail. The spokesperson for Our Republic added, if the monarchy wants to re-establish its legitimacy, then it can do so by putting its place in our future up to the vote and see if the Scottish people value their station instead of expecting those very people to pay for propping up their last desperate days. A UK government spokesperson said, It is right that the public authorities, as part of the fabric of our nation, have the opportunity, should they wish, to commemorate the accession of His Majesty the King and reflect a new era in our history. To mark the coronation, public authorities throughout the United Kingdom will be able to apply for a free portrait of His Majesty the King to celebrate the new reign. And that article was an exclusive by Adam Robertson. From the National, Monday the 28th of August. From the news section, Scottish Museum returns stolen totem pole to Canadian home. By Xander Eliards. A ceremony has been held to prepare a stolen 37 foot memorial totem pole for its return to Canada from Scotland 
in what is said to be the first transfer of its kind from a UK institution. The Nisgars Lysium's government, NLG, and National Museum Scotland, NMS, agreed last December that the pole would be returned home to the Nass Valley in British Columbia after almost a century in Scotland. It was acquired in 1929 by Canadian curator and ethnographer Marius Barbu on behalf of the Royal Museum of Scotland, which later became the National Museum of Scotland. It went on display the following year. However, the National Museum of Scotland said that while the museum acted in good faith in its acquisition of the pole, it now understands that those who sold it to Barbu did so with the cultural, spiritual or political authority to do so, on behalf of the Nisgaz nation. Following months of preparatory work, a delegation of family members and supporters from the Nisgaz Lysium government has travelled to the museum in Edinburgh to oversee the start of the Poles' return. A closed spiritual ceremony was held on Monday, August 28th to prepare the Pole for its journey home next month. Samugid Nihishjul, Chief Errol Stevens, said... In Nisgaz culture, we believe that this pole is alive with the spirit of our ancestors. After nearly a hundred years, we are finally able to bring our dear relative home to rest on Nisgaz lands. It means so much for us to have the Nisgaz memorial pole returned to us, so that we can connect our family, nation and our future generations with our living history. The memorial pole belongs to the House of Nisgaz from the Ganada, Frog Clan and the Nisgaz Nation. In 1860, House of Nisgaz Mouchak Joanne Moody commissioned the pole to be carved by Nisgaz Master Carver Oyi to honour her family member Tisawit, who was next in line to be chief. Tisawit was also a warrior who died protecting his family and nation. Sigi Dimnak Knox Tisawit, Dr. Amy Parent, said, we are grateful to collectively tell a new story that turns the colonial gaze into itself by acknowledging the complexities of our Pole's theft, its intergenerational absence from our community, and the persistence needed to ensure that justice for our ancestors prevails. The return of the Pole has been described as rematriation, which grounds on which grounds that the process of recovering belongings in indigenous law and is more closely in alignment with Niga's matrilineal society. Next month, the pole will be transported to Terrace, British Columbia, and then driven in a family procession to the Nisgaz village of Lags Galpsup in the Nass Valley, where it will be housed at High Guthel Wilp Adoshkal Nisgaz, the Nisgaz Museum. A public arrival ceremony will be held there on September the 29th, and the pole will be raised in the following days and available for the public to view in October. Dr Chris Brewer the director of the National Museum of Scotland said, Since the transfer of the memorial pole was agreed last December, our teams have been planning the complex task of carefully lowering and transporting it in what is the first return of its type by a UK national institution. We are pleased to have reached the point where the, that work is now underway and we are delighted to have welcomed the NISGA delegation to the museum before we bid the pole farewell. External Affairs and Cultural Secretary Angus Robertson said, the great significance of the Nisgaz Memorial Pole to the Nisgaz people and their community was made clear to me when I met with their representatives last year and I was pleased to have been able to provide the necessary ministerial consent to enable its return.
And that article was by Xander Eliards. From the National, Monday the 28th of August, from the news section, Singing Kettle Star apologises for changing lyrics to iconic song. Article by James Walker. Singing Kettle's Artsy Treatsy has apologised after changing the words to the celebrated and well-known children's song, You Can't Shove Your Granny Off a Bus. Trees was performing at a gig in Stirling's Albert Halls last Saturday when he changed the lyrics to You Can't Get Your Granny Off the Drugs, also naming a number of popular street drugs during the show. The 76-year-old said he was inspired by a viral cover of the song from popular rock band The La Fontaine's, according to the Daily Record, and added he would not be performing the changed lyrics again after backlash from some parents in attendance. He said, I didn't sing the song, but did recite two lines of it for adults in the audience. The parody by the La Fontaine's goes down a storm, and I'm flattered that the band were singing Kato fans as kids. The thought that the audience would think I condone drug taking and wasn't sympathetic to families who have to deal with those problems upsets me. It has been a lesson for me. The public can be assured I won't be mentioning the song again. My heart goes out to families of young people who have lost their lives in Glasgow on a weekend night out recently. It's ironic that you can't shift your granny has caused some controversy. When we sang it originally, we had to remind non-Scots audience that the first word is canny. Lots of folk were telling kids to shift their granny off the bus. A dad, who was in the show with his family, said, I think Artie thought it would be funny for the mums and dads, but it went down like a lead balloon. He maybe didn't realise that it was inappropriate. The crowd had been really noisy, but a hush fell when he finished that bit. My five-year-old asked me why he had changed the words and wanted to know what the drug terms meant. The BAFTA award-winning singing Kato was first performed in 1982 by Artie and his wife Scylla Fisher and ran for five series on the BBC and two on STV. And that article was by James Walker. From the National, Monday the 28th of August. From the culture section, travel, trip to Scottish Island is filled with lore and history. By David C. Vinescock. Once a year in late July, around 80 people gather at the tiny ferry terminal at Tingwall, Orkney, to set sail for a vanishing island. Einhallow punctuates the western end of Einhallow Sound, a narrow stretch of water separating Orkney's, Orkney's mainland from Rousey. The North Atlantic and North Sea crash into each other here, flanking Einhallow with strong, chaotic currents called roosts. It is laden with lore and history. It was once the summer home of the magical Finfolk, and its, and its now ruined monastery was visited by many of the Viking Age characters of Orkney and Gasaga including warriors and poets. It is a focal point for modern storytelling to this day. Few places so small contain such multitudes, which goes some way to explaining the enthusiasm for the annual sailing organised by the Orkney Heritage Society. Last year's trip had to be called off due to bird flu, so the excitement this year was doubled. People of all ages, visitors and locals alike, packed onto the MV Einhallow Ferry, ranging from dedicated nature lovers hoping to spot puffins and seals, to history fanatics like myself, plus a few who had booked out a blind curiosity. Luckily, 
Einhapul was happy to reveal itself. Just the day before, it was entirely lost to thick sea fog despite being less than a mile from Rousey's shore. Some antiquarians argued that Einhapul could not possibly be a vanishing island on account of this proximity, but I watched it disappear before my eyes, sometimes in mere minutes, four times over two days. As the ferry chugged towards the island, an old rhyme came to mind. Einhawo, Frank, Einhawo, free, Einhawo stands in the middle of the sea. A roaring roost on every side, Einhawo stands in the middle of the tide. The roosts were calm and envy Einhawo approached the storm beach, there is no pier, to unleash her flood of footsteps. A surprised guest speaker accompanied the journey and, to my utter delight, it was none other than master Arcadian storyteller, Tom Muir. While one half of the group began a counterclockwise turn around the island to focus on watching birds, the history-loving half followed Tom to the monastery. There we gathered round and listened to several tales of Einhallow, including the story of how its vanishing veil was lifted, though not entirely. In the time before Einhallow could be seen by mortal eyes and there was not in the sound save the tides, the good man of Thoradale married a beautiful woman who was seized by the finfolk and taken to their hidden kingdom in the sea. The good man sought answers from the wise spaywife of Hoy, who taught him to see Einhallow by looking through the hole in the Odin stone at Stenes. After many nights of meditation, he saw it at last, but could not look away lest it vanish again. So he instructed his three sons to fill each a cassie basket with salt, and they set sail for the strange new island with a plan for vengeance. On landing, they were assailed by various creatures including mermaids and the very thin men who stole the goodman's wife, and all were vanquished with the salt and sign of the cross. The goodman's son set to work ringing the island with salt to break its spell. However, the youngest son had large hands and ran out of salt before he could complete his section. That is why, though the thin folk may be banished from Einhavel, a literal of their magic still remains. It is said that an iron stake put in the ground will pop out of its own accord after dark and a thinning corn cut after sunset will bleed red. Einhalo's spell may have been tempered by the good man and his sons but it was modernity itself which ensured such wonders would never again be witnessed. In his short story The Vanishing Islands, George Mackay Brown wrote how Heather Blether, another illusory land often conflated with Einhalo, has not been seen this long while past by the Orkney folk, certainly not since fishermen folded up their sails and installed petrol engines in their boats. Yet, a strange incident in a previous expedition on July 14th, 1990, was taken by some as a sign that modernity had not entirely relegated the fin folk to the past. 88 heads were counted boarding at the ferry at Timewall. Only 86 returned. Air and sea rescue operations were conducted, but to no avail. The easy explanation is a simple miscount, but some of the older, local attendees spoke among themselves of another possibility. Perhaps the two missing visitors were finfolk who, having endured into our time, had hitched a ride back to their summer home to live out their twilight years. Indeed, just three hours in Einhallow were enough to make me question whether the finfolk's defeat was as final as the tales allege. A ring of seals spent the entire evening keeping watch over us, intruders, with one following me around half the island as I traced the precipitous western coast. One attendee sang a soothing Norwegian song to the seals, 
and several happily formed an audience. They navigated the roaring tides on either side with far more grace than we handled the land. This was clearly their home and we were mere interlopers. Something of the old magic endures in their eyes. Arcadian folklore is rife with tales of men hunting seals, only to discover in horror that they were, in fact, selkies or mermaids, and suffering misfortune and tragedy as a result. The last permanent residents of Einhallow were evicted in 1851, following the outbreak of a malignant fever, thought to have originated in the island's sole freshwater well. The landlord, the wealthy and powerful David Balfour, used the outbreak as an excuse for clearance. The census of 1851 lost five households and a total of 25 people, many of them in their early to mid-teens. I read their names aloud among the stone ruins on Einhallow's gentle northeast shore. William, 54, and Jean, 53, mainland of Easter, East House. Harriet Lautet, 13, of Midhouse James, 20, Jean, 19, and John, 17, Inkster of North House. The four servants living together in South House, Christina Ward, 19, and Corrigals, 30, Christina Hutchison, 21, and Mary Corrigal, 30, Lonely Charles Loughton, 45, a cobbler and sole resident of West House. It may well have been the first time their names were spoken in the island they called home since they were forced to leave it. That vigil held and it being 10pm it was time to return to the ferry and bid farewell to Einhallow. Speaking to others aboard, many of us felt that same sense of total tranquility people often report when on Iona. All hope to return one day, me among them. As the last light of the setting sun threw Einhallow into silhouette, I watched its shores and gentle inland slopes, half expecting to see a desperate torchlight trying to herald us back. Or, perhaps, a lone figure by the water, taking one last look over their shoulder before slipping beneath the waves and joining the seals in their ageless chorus. In Einhallow, neither would a beggared belief. In the article was written by David C. Vinescock, from the National, on Tuesday, the 29th of August, 2023, from the news section. Do airlines have to pay for a hotel if your flight is cancelled? This article is written by Rebecca Carey. Hundreds of flights to and from the UK are thought to have been cancelled over the bank holiday, with many passengers stranded over an air traffic control failure. A technical issue with the UK air traffic control system saw the issues arise, with some planes being in the wrong location as a result. The National Air Traffic Services said on Monday afternoon, August 28th, that the glitch had been fixed, however. Hundreds of flights were cancelled. A total of 232 flights departing UK airports had been cancelled, and 271 arriving flights by Monday afternoon, according to aviation analytics firm Serium. Will my airline pay for a hotel if my flight is cancelled? Under UK law, those affected have legal rights that oblige the airlines to provide support to customers flying from the UK airport, arriving in the country on an EU or UK airline, or arriving at the EU airport on a UK airline. Sharing advice on this issue, 
the Civil Aviation Authority, CAA, had said that in a case of a significant delay, the airline must provide a reasonable amount of food and drink, commonly in the form of vouchers, refunds for the cost of calls, and accommodation for passengers stuck overnight and transport to a hotel or their home. A significant delay is defined as more than two hours for a short-haul flight of under 1,500 kilometres. More than three hours for medium haul of up to 3,500 kilometres and more than four hours for long haul flights. You can read the CAA's full guidance advice on your rights via its website. Airlines are required to pay compensation if flights arrive more than three hours late, but only when it is their fault. This means that the air traffic control problems could fall under the definition of exceptional circumstances and therefore the carriers would be exempt from paying out. The CAA had also said it accepts that airlines are sometimes unable to organise some of the support outlined above, so passengers should make their own reasonable arrangements, like keeping receipts to claim money back. The authority adds that luxury hotels and alcohol are unlikely to be paid for, but some airlines provide guidance on reasonable costs. If you are rerouted on the next day, accommodation usually at a nearby hotel, as well as transport to and from the accommodation or your home, if you are unable to return there, should be provided. Passengers should also note that if they accept a refund or to travel later than the first flight, available flight, then the airline is not obliged to provide food, drink or accommodation. And that article was written by Rebecca Carey. From the National on Tuesday the 29th of August 2023. Call to expand Scottish independence citizenship plans from the politics section. This article was written by Judith Duffy. A call has been made for everyone living in Scotland on the day of independence to be entitled to citizenship of the country. Under Scottish government plans unveiled in July, those entitled to automatic citizenship would include British citizens and individuals who who have previously lived in Scotland for at least 10 years or 5 years as a child. People from other countries could also qualify for naturalised citizenship if they have been living in Scotland for at least 5 years and been settled in Scotland for at least 12 months. But the new proposal put forward for discussion at the SNP conference later this year suggests it should be changed so that everyone residing in Scotland is recognised as a citizen on Independence Day, regardless of their country of origin or current nationality. This approach to citizenship is fundamental to building a Scotland that is welcoming, diverse and united in its pursuit of a brighter future, it is argued. Jeremy Fernandez, SNP councillor for Elgin City North, who is proposing the motion backed by the Elgin branch, said automatic citizenship would cover everybody, for example students, asylum seekers, and those who would move to the country shortly before it leaves the UK. He said, The motion is to seek to make sure that every person resident in Scotland on the day of independence should get automatic right to Scottish citizenship. He said, There are a large number of new Scots who would potentially not meet the requirement of having lived in the country for five years on the day of independence. They already contribute to society, so why favour British citizens rather than make sure their right to citizenship is inclusive to everyone, he added. We need immigration in Scotland. Our population is ageing, so it would probably boost before independence the population. You could get people working in Scotland. But more than that, the people who are already living in Scotland, the new Scots, are living in a bit of fear since Brexit. 
never knowing when the rules are going to change or the visa will be cancelled. It's about giving a bit of hope and telling people who live in Scotland there is something to look forward to. And then obviously they might be more interested in voting for independence if they have that fear removed when Scotland becomes independent. The motion on the draft agenda for the SNP conference, which is taking place in Aberdeen in October, states, Conference firmly believes that on the day Scotland achieves independence, everyone residing in Scotland should be recognised as a Scottish citizen, regardless of the country of origin or current nationality. Conference acknowledges that those who have made Scotland their home, irrespective of their roots, have enriched our society and have played an integral role in shaping our collective identity. Granting the right to Scottish citizenship to all residents on the day of independence not only upholds our commitment to equality, but also symbolises our openness to embracing diversity and fostering a cohesive society. Conference regrets the Scottish government's commitment to make giving automatic rights to Scottish citizenship on the day of independence to British citizens only. Conference therefore calls to the Scottish Government to change its policy and commit to automatic conferring the right to Scottish citizenship in all individuals residing in Scotland on the day Scotland becomes independent, regardless of their origin or current nationality. Fernandez said he hoped the motion would make it to the final agenda for discussion at conference. I think most members of the SNP see independence as a fresh start for Scotland, not just a continuation of the UK. So that continuation where you only give citizenship to British citizens, I'm confident if it gets on the agenda, it will pass. I am hopeful members will vote for it to be on the final agenda. And that article was written by Judith Duffy. From The National, on Tuesday the 29th of August, 2023. Edinburgh Yes Rally, Alistair Heather and Kelly Given on Fresh View, from the politics section. This article was written by Laura Pollock. You'll feel your own power when you're there. You'll get a sense of actually, as a voter and as a campaigner, I can really help move the world. Ahead of the march and rally for an independent Scotland in the EU this Saturday, presenters Alistair Heather and Kelly Given are more than a little excited by the palpable energy. The stars are finally aligning, said Heather, and this rally, I really hope, is the start of it. The independence fever is spreading again like it did in 2000. 13, 14. Given agreed. It feels like we're moving into a space now where we've cultivated this new movement that is kind of reminiscent of the campaign in 2014. Everyone's very hopeful and it's all about a positive vision for an independent Scotland. I feel really good about it. After the Edinburgh march down the Royal Mile from Johnston Terrace to the Scottish Parliament, the pair are to host the rally featuring several high-profile guests, including First Minister Humza Yousaf, Minister of Independence Jamie Hepburn, MSP, author and national columnist Leslie Riddick, founder of Believe in Scotland Gordon McIntyre Kemp and renowned Scots actor Brian Cox. With an expected turnout of at least 15,000 independent supporters, Heather and Given feel this event is a real turning point for the independence movement. We've had to kind of hold our nerve a lot over the last nine years and keep the faith of independence, Heather said. A lot of times it looks like it was a million miles away. Like in the middle of COVID, you're thinking, how the hell can we meaningfully disrupt the COVID recovery with an independence referendum? Maybe we could have immediately off the back of Brexit, but then folk were just so sick of campaigns and politicking and bullshit from politicians that there was no appetite for another big referendum. But now it really feels like a lot of things have come together at the right time. 
He cited recent reports of the President of the European Council telling colleagues the European Union must be ready to accept new member states by 2030 as it is a time to move forward. Heather, a broadcaster and activist, said that's a huge thing for them to be saying, especially when behind the scenes European diplomats are being so positive to Scottish politicians. That's a real change which can inspire. Closer to home, the wind power revolution that we're seeing in Scotland is so massive, said Heather, describing it as an opportunity Scotland cannot miss out on. So we have the opportunity in Europe, we have the opportunity here at home with green renewable energy, and then the little sting in the tail of a motivation to leave the United Kingdom. So Keir Starmer and Rishi Sunak are utterly uninspiring. Nobody in Scotland can hand on heart say that they're buzzing to have either of them in charge of Scotland's future. So we've got such a positive time to be independent for Scotland. We've got a really good reason to leave the UK and the EU are making it clear that they'll welcome us. It feels fresh. In a movement dominated by older activists, activist and national columnist Given said her, having her and Heather host it is like a changing of the guard. When pointing out it was two young people at the front of the rally, Given said, I think that's what we need. We need to bring young people with us more. It's them that's going to win it for us. It feels fresh. It's what we've been needing for a long time. It is a bit of a changing of the guard in terms of the movement and who is at the forefront of it, because realistically, we've not shifted the poles as much as we should have. It's the same people in charge all the time and the same people in front of the movement all the time. It's going to be good to have a bit of a fresh perspective. Both agreed Saturday will be cathartic for Yes activists after a period of negativity from both within and out with the movement. We've been all kind of dragged down by negativity and within the movement and the position with each other. So it feels like we're kind of moving into a space now where we've cultivated this new movement, said Given. Heather added, we're going to get together on Saturday and it's going to be so good because it's not a case of getting together and saying what the hell are we going to do how the hell are we going to move forward here it's getting together and saying we've kept the faith we've held our nerve and now it's time to strike again and we're going to do it and for anyone thinking of an independence rally for the first time especially young people given said the first thing that i ever went to independence wise i went by myself and i just kind of took a big leap of faith and i met a few of my very best friends who i'm still best friends with to this day it sparked this whole sort of new career for me that I'd never even thought I had a place in before. So don't be scared to get involved because if it makes you interested in, even just generally, if you're interested in politics and feel you don't have a voice, don't be afraid to go. Go and do it. Go and be heard. You'll feel your own power when you're there, Heather said. You'll get a sense of, actually, as a voter and as a campaigner, I can really help move the world. In my first rally in Edinburgh, when loads of us turned up and marched down the Royal Mile, I realised, hold on, there's power here and I'm part of it. And we are able to change things for the better together. I think that's a really empowering thing for any young people to realise that they're more than just a vote. They're more than just a number. It can be part of a movement that can genuinely make things better in the immediate future for Scotland. And that article was written by Laura Pollock. The National Politics on Wednesday, the 30th of August. Nadine Doris attacked over local MP record as she formally quits. An article written by Judith Duffy. A council leader has launched a scathing attack on Nadine Doris as she formally quit as an MP, saying she's rarely ever been seen in her constituency. The former culture secretary, who handed in her resignation over the weekend, has now officially quit the Commons, months after pledging to resign with immediate effect. It means the Tories will have to fight yet another by-election, this time in mid-Bedfordshire, which is a seat the party has held since 1931. 
Adam Zerny, the independent leader of Central Bedfordshire Council, said there is a great degree of relief among Ms Doris's constituents that she has officially resigned from Parliament. Speaking to Matt Chorley on Times Radio, he said there's a great degree of relief amongst the many people who are constituents that finally this may be over and we may soon find that we have an MP that actually cares about the local community. She's rarely ever been seen in the area and I think we've had very much the impression that what she cares about is her own life and her life at Westminster rather than mid-Bedfordshire. He said Ms Doris was the only MP from the local area not to make contact with him after he became leader of the council in May this year. When I became leader back in May, I received emails, phone calls from the local MPs who wanted to make contact, have conversations, discuss local issues, he said. I've had nothing from Nadine Doris. She was the only one that didn't make contact in any way. And frankly, there's never been the slightest indication that she has any interest in the council. Ms Doris has formally quit as an MP after the Treasury confirmed Chancellor Jeremy Hunt has appointed her to be steward and bailiff of the Three Hundreds of Chiltern, the archaic mechanism for quitting the Commons. Her official exit means a motion called a writ can be moved when Parliament returns on September the 4th giving between 21 and 27 working days for the by-election. Labour and the Liberal Democrats are already campaigning for the seat, with Prime Minister Rishi Sunak facing the prospect of another difficult electoral test for the Conservatives in a nominally safe constituency. The departure of Ms Doris came after weeks of pressure on her to quit and act on her June 9th pledge to step down with immediate effect, in protest at not getting a peerage in Boris Johnson's resignation honours list. The Johnson loyalist resigned over the weekend with a scathing attack on Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. An article written by Judith Duffy. The National News on Wednesday the 30th of August. Scottish Beach is rated the cleanest in the UK. An article written by Adam Robertson. A Scottish beach has been named as the cleanest in the UK, with three across the country making the top ten. Researchers at Cleanipedia investigated where in the UK to find the cleanest beaches using TripAdvisor. The team examined top-rated TripAdvisor reviews with mentions of the word clean and other associated keywords. Embo Beach in Dornoch in the Scottish Highlands was named as the cleanest beach in the UK. Troon Beach, meanwhile, came in in sixth place, while Burnt Island Beach came in ninth place. As for the rest of the top ten, only two beaches in England were named as it continues to be plagued by issues with sewage dumping. All the others on the list were in Wales. Across Scotland, the top ten cleanest beaches were... Embo Beach, Dornoch, Troon Beach, South Ayrshire, Burnt Island Beach, Fife, Fraserburgh Beach, Tiger Hill, Irvine Beach, North Ayrshire, Saltcoats Beach, North Ayrshire, Sandend Beach, Banff, Cullen Beach, Bucky, Girvan Beach, South Ayrshire, and Leven Beach in Fife. An article written by Adam Robertson. The National News. On Wednesday, the 30th of August. College support staff set for strike action. An article written by Laura Pollock. 
College support staff will strike next week in a dispute over pay, terms and conditions. Unison said more than 2,000 members in colleges across Scotland will walk out on Thursday, September the 7th. The National Strike Day will be followed by a rolling programme of dates for localised action in colleges across the country. The union claimed that although college employers have increased their offer from 2% to a £3,500 flat rate payment over two years, this comes with a real threat of compulsory redundancies of support staff. Those walking out next week will include librarians, IT specialists, technicians, administrative and business support staff, cleaners, canteen workers and estate management staff. Members voted by 93% in April to strike, on a turnout of 62%. Unison Further Education Branch Secretary Chris Greenshields said, College staff were due this pay increase a year ago. It's unacceptable, even by the standards of the college sector, to take this long to agree a deal. The employer's idea of a resolution to the crisis is to threaten our members with compulsory redundancy. Effectively, members are being asked to pay for their own pay rise with their job during a cost-of-living crisis. We need the same guarantee that's been given to the rest of the public sector that there will be no compulsory redundancies. Unison has appealed to the Scottish Government to help us find a solution. Employers must extend the no-compulsory-redundancy guarantee to college staff. Colleges are publicly funded, but the Government refuses to intervene. The Minister seems willing to allow the strikes to proceed rather than ensure staff get a decent pay rise. Colleges where Unison has a mandate to take strike action are the City of Glasgow College, Edinburgh College, Fife College... Glasgow Clyde College, West College Scotland, North East Scotland College, Glasgow Kelvin College and Ayrshire College. It also has a mandate for action at Dundee and Angus College, New College Lanarkshire, University of the Highlands and Islands Argyll, University of the Highlands and Islands Murray, University of the Highlands and Islands Perth, University of the Highlands and Islands Inverness, Borders College, Dumfries and Galloway College, South Lanarkshire College, West Lothian College, Forth Valley College and New Battle Abbey College. Gavin Donoghue, Director of College Employer Scotland, said It's disappointing that Unison has announced national strike action. Colleges will now seek to put in place measures to mitigate the effects of any proposed action on their students' education. College Employer Scotland provided a full and final pay offer to all support staff trade unions, that is Unison, Unite and the GMB, in June for a cumulative £3,500 pay rise. We hope Unison calls off these damaging strikes. An article written by Laura Pollock. The National News on Wednesday the 30th of August. Scottish paramedic helps villagers in Peru. An article written by Jane MacLeod. A Scottish ambulance service paramedic has headed into the Peruvian jungle to provide medical support to local communities. Kelly Irvin, who's from Falkirk, recently worked as a medical volunteer alongside a doctor and two medical students supporting local clinicians on board a medical ship. The ship travelled to rural riverside communities along the Peruvian Amazon, stopping at each village once every three months to provide access to medical care and support. 
Kelly's trip was made possible by the work of the Vine Trust, a Scotland-based international development charity that enables volunteers to provide medical, home-building and care support to communities living in severe poverty in Tanzania and in Peru. By using a medical ship to provide healthcare services, clinicians can reach isolated communities who can't travel to the nearest hospitals or clinics due to distance, financial or climatic factors. The medical ships provide a safe and hygienic facility, which can be easily accessed throughout the year. On board, there is registration, triage, two medical clinics, two dental clinics, one pharmacy, one lab and a minor surgery unit. Miss Irvin, who spent two weeks aboard the medical ship, said, An average day started at 8am at a new village until 6pm when we travelled on to the next community to rest. At first, the other medical staff weren't sure what expertise I could bring as a paramedic until I explained the range of patient-centred care we can provide. In the jungle, access to healthcare is very different to the UK. My approach was adapted to the needs of the patients in a non-emergency setting. We discussed what outcomes they wanted and how this could be provided long term. This was really an experience of a lifetime and I would 100% recommend the expedition to other clinicians. I enjoyed taking myself out of my comfort zone and using my skills in a different environment. An article written by Jane McLeod. From the National... Thursday the 31st of August From the news section Brian Cox pulls out of Edinburgh Yes Rally after getting Covid Report by Steph Braun Brian Cox has pulled out of a major Scottish independence rally after getting Covid The succession star was due to be a speaker at the March and Rally for an Independent Scotland in the EU taking place in Edinburgh on Saturday Cox has said he's Absolutely gutted to be missing the event being organised by Believe in Scotland and Yes for EU. The actor said, I am absolutely gutted to have to miss the Believe in Scotland rally, which seems to be building into the pivotal movement for the independence movement. I was looking forward tremendously to joining the grassroots independence organisers and supporters and an inspiring list of speakers on Saturday for this positive celebration of the independence movement. I would very much like to attend the Believe in Scotland March and Rally planned for early next year, so I will work with the organisers to fit that into my schedule. Cox, who has called on supporters to speed up the push for independence, has offered to record a video for independent supporters once he is feeling well enough. Gordon McIntyre Kemp, the founder of Believe in Scotland, said, Everyone at Believe in Scotland and Yes for EU wishes Brian a speedy recovery. We will miss both the star quality and honest integrity that Brian provides whenever he speaks in Scotland's undoubted potential as an independent nation. Brian has also offered to record a video for our supporters when he is fully recovered, so we will hear from him soon. Other speakers due to appear at the event include First Minister Hamza Yousaf and Scottish Green's co-leader Lorna Slater. The march will go down the Royal Mile from Johnston Terrace to the Scottish Parliament, where a rally will then be hosted by Alistair Heather and Kelly Given. Two reporters from the National will be at the event on Saturday to cover all the action and speak to activists from across the Yes movement. And that piece was by Steph Braun.
from the National, Thursday the 31st of August, from the New Sitchin. First Minister intervenes in row over safe consumption rooms. Article by Abby Garton Crosby. The First Minister has urged the UK government to look at the evidence for drug consumption rooms and allow a facility to open in Glasgow or devolve powers over drug laws to Holyrood. The Home Office has repeatedly rejected calls to allow sites where users can take drugs under the supervision of medical professionals who would also offer access to addiction treatment. A report by Westminster's Home Affairs Committee has now recommended a pilot consumption room is set up in Glasgow where such a service has been mooted for years to test its efficacy. The Home Office, however, almost immediately knocked back the calls leading to the FM's intervention. Hamza Yousaf told the PA News Agency, I would urge the UK government to look at the evidence that the committee has brought forward in its report. It aligns very much with their own position that safe consumption rooms can play a role, just another tool for us to have in the armoury, in our fight against drug deaths, which are far too high here in Scotland. I would say to the UK government, don't have a dogmatic or ideological opposition, Look at the evidence that the committee has brought forward and others have brought forward and let's have a genuine discussion. The FM added that if the UK government does not allow a consumption room to open, the powers to do so should be devolved to Scotland. Action that has been taken in Scotland and the rest of the UK in recent years hasn't been working, Yousaf continued, adding, we have to look at more radical approaches. The Scottish government recently published a paper proposing the decriminalisation of drugs and the beginning of a conversation that could lead to the creation of a regulated market for substances, plans which were also rejected by the UK government. Meanwhile, Scottish Labour leader Anna Sauer said he supported the UK government maintaining control over drug laws, adding he did not support their devolution to Holyrood. I think there is a way forward here that allows us to pilot safe consumption rooms in Glasgow and other parts of the country, that does not require the devolution of our drug laws, Sarwar said at an event in Glasgow on Thursday. It requires, as the Lord Advocate has already highlighted, a change in terms of how you would have a presumption against prosecution. I think that is a much more cooperative way forward if we are serious about tackling the issue. Sarwar added, to have the highest drug dates Anywhere in Western Europe, anywhere in the UK, is utterly unacceptable. I'm sick and tired of politicians wanting to play politics with these people's lives, rather than help save these people's lives. Responding to the report, a spokesperson for the Home Office said, There is no safe way to take illegal drugs, which devastate lives, ruin families and damage communities, and we have no plans to consider this. Our 10-year drug strategy set out ambitious plans, Back with a record £3 billion funding over three years to tackle the supply of illicit drugs through relentless policing action and building a world-class system of treatment and recovery to turn people's lives around and prevent crime. Under the committee's recommendations, Glasgow would operate a pilot of facilities that could then be expanded across the UK, funded by the governments north and south of the border. The report comes after figures published last week revealed Scotland's largest ever fall in drug deaths, with data from the National Records of Scotland, NRS, showing there were 1,051 deaths due to drug misuse in 2022, 
a drop of 279 on the previous year. But while the number of deaths linked to drug misuse is now at the lowest it has been since 2017, the NRS report made clear the rate of death is still much higher than it was when it began recording the data in 1996. Additionally, the MP said on-site drug checking services at temporary events like music festivals and within the nighttime economy should be rolled out, recommending the Home Office establish a dedicated licensing scheme for drug checking at such events before the start of summer 2024 festival season. And that report was by Abby Garton Crosby. From the National, Thursday the 31st of August, from the news section, Police Scotland, Naloxone rollout has already saved lives, by Ross Hunter. Police Scotland has completed its rollout of a drug which can reverse overdoses, with the officer who led the initiative saying it has already saved lives. The force announced a year ago it was to issue naloxone, which can be used to reverse opioid overdoses, to around 12,500 officers. On Thursday, International Overdose Awareness Day, it confirmed the rollout is complete and police have administered naloxone on at least 325 occasions. Police have been given individual pouches containing the spray to be worn as part of their standard issue equipment. Assistant Chief Constable Gary Ritchie, who led the programme, said the use of naloxone is part of a public health approach to preventing harm. He said, We've had positive outcomes in the overwhelming majority of incidents, and I am in no doubt that by doing so, our officers have saved lives. I very much hope that by officers carrying it in a highly visible manner, it will encourage other people to learn about naloxone and consider carrying it themselves. Dressing Police Scotland's commitment to doing all we can to combat the insidious effects of drugs in our society. He said the force will continue to work at local, national and inter- international level to stop drugs from reaching our communities. PC Jenna, Jenna Minstrel has administered naloxone twice, including to treat a person who collapsed beside her in Glasgow. She recalled being on foot patrol with a fellow officer in the city centre when a person who was unsteady on their feet and slurring their words came towards them. PC Minchel called 999 after the person slumped to the ground, adding that she was advised to give naloxone after they became unresponsive. She said, I gave one dose of the intranasal spray and, after a few minutes, I gave a second dose. The casualty's condition improved and soon after the ambulance crew arrived and took over the patient's care. I'm confident to use naloxone kits, particularly as they're a spray and so easy to administer. It's reassuring to know you can't overdose on it or do anyone any harm by giving them it. I'd certainly far rather have it to hand if if needs be than potentially see someone potentially die if I didn't have it. Drug Policy Minister Eleanor Whitham praised police for their efforts and said, The rollout of naloxone training has no doubt resulted in many lives being saved. Naloxone is one of a wide range of measures being used to address the public health emergency of drugs death, but it plays an important role. Of course, we want to help people long before they get to the point of a life-threatening overdose. We are taking action now to save and improve lives with an evidence-based approach implementing policies that we know 
work to reduce harm and death from drugs and focusing on getting people into support and treatment. We are investing a total of £250 million in our national mission on drugs over the course of this parliament and have already supported 300 grassroots projects. And that article was written by Ross Hunter. From the National, Thursday the 31st of August, from the news section, Exclusive, Vehicle Tax and Right to Roam Review Could Help Combat Over-Tourism, says Report, by Steph Braun. A vehicle-based levy for tourists visiting Scottish beauty spots should be introduced ahead of taxing people to stay in paid accommodation, a reporting to Over-Tourism has recommended. Robin Pettigrew, Chartered Member of the Institute of Occupational Health and he- Safety and Health, has written and submitted the document entitled Tourism, but not at any price as part of a community response to the Scottish Government's consultation on implementing a tourist tax. Living in Loch Carron, Pettigrew has become increasingly frustrated with irresponsible tourists on the NC500, which he insists has been over-promoted in an explosion of staycations after the Covid lockdown. Some of the more acute problems in the route include people defecating outside homes, careless parking on verges and large camper vans, and off-grid campers damaging the environment by setting large bonfires and widespread littering. His report argues a vehicle-based levy would be much more effective than a tax on paid accommodation stays, given that the latter only make up a small part of the tourism sector. The Visitor Levy Scotland Bill currently proposes charging tourists a percentage of their accommodation costs to support local services. The report also calls for the Scottish Outdoor Access Code and Right to Roam legislation, which includes the right to camp wild overnight, to be reviewed. On a vehicle-based tax, Pettigrew told the National, paid accommodation is a smaller part of the tourism sector. The explosion of motorhomes and camper vans and people camping and travelling around in cars is a very large part of the problem. So, if you're only taxing people staying in paid accommodation, you're impinging on local businesses, putting up their costs, and you're not capturing a very substantial part of the visitors coming up here. Automatic number plate recognition technology could be used to implement the tax, while rangers should be responsible for catching people who don't pay their way, Pettigrew has suggested. The report additionally highlights a widespread lack of public toilets in rural areas, combined with an increasing issue of chemical toilet cassettes being emptied into normal toilets, drivers competing for insufficient car parking spaces, and motorhome users camping off-grid to avoid overnight charges at official sites. The report states the Scottish Government has failed to provide sufficient funding for the infrastructure required to accommodate the increase in visitor numbers, and Pettigrew is calling for a national infrastructure delivery programme to the tune of tens of millions of pounds to solve some of the more overwhelming problems for small communities. There are also calls for the Scottish Outdoor Access Code and Right to Roam legislation to be reviewed in relation to roadside camping and the report argues there should be a ban on non-local overnight parking, particularly by vehicles adapted for sleeping in. The report explains, The Outdoor Access Code hasn't been reviewed for suitability in dealing with roadside camping. Social media wild camping groups have sprung up to advertise the popular spots, resulting in overcrowding and significant environmental damage. The legislated wild camping right was never designed for this type of camping 
at the volume now being experienced, but it does legally enable it. Further, when tents end up being pitched cheap by Jill at the popular spots, even if everyone followed the current wild camping rules, the environment still wouldn't cope by dint of sheer numbers, particularly in terms of toilet waste and campfire use. If necessary, Petty Grew, who has worked with business owners and residents in the Highlands to produce the report, said he plans to compile proposals into a white paper to be presented to the Scottish Government for consideration. Petrigo said he has sensed a growing political appetite for dealing with over-tourism. He said, We're getting more people coming on board, with councillors and MSPs are coming forward. It needs a national solution. His report adds, We can certainly argue that tourism has seen a phenomenal increase across all of Scotland, and hats off to Visit Scotland for achieving this success. However, those cities with their built-in infrastructure and extensive accommodation offerings can cope and indeed are well-placed to benefit from increasing visitor numbers, our smaller and rural communities are struggling. The national focus has been almost entirely on marketing and very little reciprocal infrastructure investment has been targeted to ensure our rural communities can cope with this influx. Disappointingly, Neither Visit Scotland's Tourism Futures paper nor their recent trends publication have recognised this issue. This paper is a plea to central and local government to ensure the predicted and sought-after growth in tourism does not continue to overwhelm smaller communities, damaging our natural heritage and ultimately ruining rural Scotland as a sustainable place to live. A Scottish Government spokesperson said, the Scottish Government is working to ensure tourism across Scotland remains sustainable. Since the Rural Tourism Infrastructure Fund's introduction, £18.9 million grant funding has been awarded to 75 projects across 17 local authorities and both national park authorities, investing in facilities such as car parks, waste disposal and toilet provision. We also work with partner organisations, including Visit Scotland, to deliver coordinated approaches to responsible tourism marketing, education and awareness activity. Malcolm Roughhead, Chief Executive of Visit Scotland, said, We recognise that there is a careful balance to strike between the benefits tourism brings and the impact on communities and the environment. Responsible tourism is a core part of our recovery plan and Scotland's tourism strategy, Scotland Outlook 2030, launched in 2020. We have adjusted our marketing strategy to reflect the challenges faced in specific areas, focusing our activity on encouraging visitors to visit a wider variety of destinations across the year. As part of the reopening and recovery of tourism from the impact of COVID-19, we have been working with partners on a Scotland-wide approach to visitor management. Through combined marketing and PR activity, plus practical measures such as recruitment of seasonal rangers, and monitoring of visitor numbers, we have been able to address some key visitor management challenges with this work ongoing. However, we understand that more work needs to be done. And that article was an exclusive by Steph Braun. From the National, Thursday the 31st of August, in the Culture section, First Minister Hale's next chapter in Schools Reading Project by Ross Hunter First Minister Hamza Yousaf has backed the next chapter of a reading scheme which is having a transformative effect in Scotland schools. 
The Scottish Government funded Reading Skills Programme has been developed from the First Minister's Reading Challenge, which is set up by USAF's predecessor, Nicola Sturgeon. So far, a total of 371 schools across the country have become accredited as Reading Skills, with a further 511 having joined the project. Ministers hope every school in Scotland will become part of the scheme in the next three to five years. Yousaf said he hoped the development of the scheme meant more youngsters could benefit. He is also working with the Scottish Book Trust, which delivers a reading schools programme, to develop a refreshed ver- version of the Read-Write-Count initiative, with plans for the new Read-Write-Count with the First Minister programme, to provide books and other materials to children from this autumn. The First Minister said, I am pleased that the hugely successful First Minister's Reading Challenge has now evolved into a reading support programme that will benefit even more pupils and involves the whole school community. We know that reading can support improved attainment across the curriculum and that embedding a reading culture in schools can open the door to a lifelong love of books. Education Secretary Jenny Ruth, who joined the First Minister on a visit to Claypots Castle Primary School in Dundee, encouraged all schools to sign up for the Reading Schools programme. Gilruth added, Evaluation has shown the clear benefits of reading schools to pupils and school staff, and I look forward to seeing the impact of this next phase of our work with the Scottish Book Trust. Mark Lambert, Chief Executive of the Scottish Book Trust, said the project was already having a transformative effect on schools, both on young people and learning professionals, as well as the wider school community. He praised Yousaf and the government for their commitment to literacy and numeracy, benefiting pupils across all ages and stages of their education. Meanwhile, Claypots Castle Primary School head teacher Nikki Murray said the Reading Schools initiative had helped them to drive forward a culture of reading in our school. The head teacher said, We have already awarded over 250 certificates to children this year to celebrate their reading achievements and the feedback from families has been overwhelmingly positive. And the article was by Ross Hunter. That concludes this week's edition of the National Podcast. Please remember to subscribe to our channels at Tune Review and tell your friends about our service. <laughs>